Our passage today comes from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he was, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Mackenzie. Let's well, get to see everybody this morning. If I haven't, if you're new with us or visiting with us, and I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Cross Fellowship Church, and so we're glad that you're here to join us um, on this Resurrection Sunday. And if you're a, a normal um, attender or member of our church, you know we're usually in Romans, and so you're probably didn't even know um, where the book of Isaiah was, and so we've been in Romans for a while. Uh, we're going to resume that next week, kind of taking a, a pit stop this morning uh, for Easter, uh, for this Resurrection Sunday, going to be here at the end of Isaiah 52, and then also into Isaiah 53. Every 12 years, over 150 million Hindus gather together and plunge themselves into the Ganges River. Every year, millions of Muslims make a pilgrimage to Mecca. They give alms and say their prayers. Today, there are many tribal groups in Africa who will sacrifice chickens and goats. And today, there are many professing Christians in America who will attend church, who will be baptized, and who will read their Bibles and, and give to the church. And so you hear all that, and so question I wanted you to think about is what do all of those events and what do all those activities have in common? What's the common thread that runs through all of those that unites them together? What's the commonality? Well, the commonality between all those events and activities is that all of those are different ways in which people try throughout the world to cleanse themselves from sin. Those are all different ways in which people try and remove their guilt before God. In other words, God's given us all a conscience. Like every single person that's been created 
knows right from wrong. They, they know right from wrong. We all know when we've done wrong. We all know when we've done things that we shouldn't have. We all know that when we've done things that are displeasing to or dishonoring to the creator God that created us. And as a result of that wrong that we feel in our conscience, then we feel guilty. We feel dirty. Oftentimes we feel ashamed. And that guilt and that shame and that feeling of uncleanliness, it, it gnaws at us. It's what keeps us up at night at times and tossing and turning. It's a thing in our, in our mind that is constantly just reminding us that, we've, that something's not, not right, that something's off. It's that thing in our heart that keeps us from living at peace, that causes us to be unsettled, that causes us to be discontent. And as I just mentioned, there, there are thousands of different ways that people in this world have sought to come up with to try and, and convince themselves and try and just ease their guilty conscience, to try and cleanse themselves from this shame and this guilt and this feeling of, of dirtiness and, and uncleanliness that they, that they feel and experience. And so some people do that by just trying to justify themselves and comparing themselves with others and saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as, as him. At least I'm not as bad as, as her. Others try and cleanse their, their guilty conscience by, by just trying to numb themselves, just by trying to escape. And so they keep themselves busy at work so they don't have to think about how, how bad they are or the bad things that they've done, the shame that they feel, the guilt that they feel. Others just scroll through social media. Others just veg watching Netflix and movies all day long. Others engage in, in other sinful acts and, and pleasures to just try and find a way to escape the guilty conscience that they feel. While others just get themselves busy in religious activity, in religious deeds. Many, like I mentioned earlier, hoping that by doing these religious activities, by doing these religious deeds, that they'll satisfy God, that he'll finally be happy with them and pleased with them because of all their religious activity and deeds that they're doing. And they'll their guilty conscience will be, will be eased. Unfortunately, I think we can all attest to this, none of these things work. That we might be able to numb our, our guilt for a while, we might be able to escape that, those, those feelings of shame and, and guilt for a while, but it's only a while until that guilt and, and shame and feeling of dirtiness just comes back upon us. So none of those things last. Which then begs the question, what do we do then? Like, is, is, there any, is there any solution? Is there any answer? Is there any hope for this feeling of, of guilt and shame that we experience because of, because of our sin and the wrong things that we've, we've done? Well, I've got good news for you this Easter morning. There, there is hope. There is an answer and there is a solution to your guilty conscience. And that hope and that solution is found in none other than the person of Jesus. That, that only Jesus can remove your guilt. That only Jesus can cleanse you from your sin and remove you from your shame. That the removal of your guilt isn't found in plunging yourself into the Genghis River. It's not found in making a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's not found in sacrificing a chicken to God. And it's not found in being baptized, giving money to this church, or by reading your Bible. Instead, the only answer that God gives to how, the question of how in the world can I remove this guilt from me is, is the name and the person of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see within our passage this morning. We're going to see what Jesus' death in what Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate this morning, how God, that is the means by which God has planned and instituted to satisfy his wrath against us and the guilt that we have because of the wrong things that we've done and the sins that we've committed against him. And so we're going to see that in, in Isaiah 52, the very last three verses here, and then also in Isaiah 
53. Before we launch into these, these verses, there, there are three important things we need to know about this particular passage of Scripture. And the first thing we need to know is this. This passage is all about a servant. It's all about a servant. It's all about God's servant. And we see that from the very get-go, if you see there in verse 13. Isaiah says, behold, God's speaking through Isaiah, behold, my servant. And so what you're going to notice as we go throughout this passage, Isaiah's never going to identify for us who this servant is. It's just this servant. But we're never told who this servant actually is. Instead, what we have to do is turn to the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, what we're going to see is that eight of these 12 verses that are, that, are, that are here in Isaiah chapter 53, eight of those 12 verses in Isaiah 53 are directly quoted in the New Testament. And all of them are in reference to Jesus. What that means then is that Jesus is the servant that, that's mentioned here in Isaiah 53. The second important thing we need to know about this passage of Scripture is this, is that it was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. Like, that's crazy, right? Like, that's astonishing. That when, you're gonna, when we read this passage and go through this passage, it's going to sound like Isaiah is at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus die and just describing everything that he sees. But he, but he wasn't at the foot of the cross. This was 700 years before that, the cross even occurred. But it's going to be described in such detail, it's as if he was actually there. Third important truth we're going to see here is that there are five different stanzas within this passage, within this song. And each of these stanzas are three verses long. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to make our way through each of these stanzas, through each of these three verses in each stanza. And as we do that, what, what Isaiah is going to do, God's going to do through Isaiah, is he, with each of these stanzas, he wants to teach us a very important truth about, his, about God's servant. A very important truth about God's servant. And as we see these important truths about God's servant, we're going to see how God's servant is our answer to our problem of guilt. And so the first truth that we're going to see when it comes to this servant of God is this. And you see that all this on your hand out there. But the first truth is this. It's that this servant will look appalling, yet be exalted as king. He will look appalling, yet be exalted as king. So what we see in the very first stanza there in, in chapter 52, look at verse 13 with me. God is speaking here through Isaiah and says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. If you have an ESV translation, you might notice there's a little footnote beside the word wisely here. And if you follow that footnote all the way to, down to the bottom of the, of the page there, that footnote says, or shall prosper. And that's probably a better translation here. And that's, this is how most translations, other than the ESV, translates this word wisely. It means that God's servant is going to prosper meaning he's going to be successful, he's going to be victorious. And as a result of his prosperity, or as a result of his success and victory, look then at the rest of verse 13 and what's going to happen to him next. He says, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Do you see the words there, high and lifted up there? Those words there appear four times in the book of Isaiah. One time's here in verse 13 of chapter 52, and the other three times appear other places throughout Isaiah, like in Isaiah chapter 6. But if you follow the, the context here of this phrasing of high and, and lifted up, all the other times that this is used in reference to somebody in the book of Isaiah, it's always, you know who it's always used in reference to? It's always used in reference to God. And so then right from the get-go, what we see is that this servant is going to be a victorious, divine king who's going to be sitting on a throne, reigning and ruling like God, equal to God. And so this is the first description and image then that God gives us of this servant. But look what he says next there in verse 14. He says, as many were astonished at you, meaning the servant. 
Many, many were astonished at the servant. Do you see that word astonished there? That word astonished means horrified. It means appalled. Which is kind of a weird way, right, to describe or a weird way to, to respond to a victorious, conquering, divine king who's been high and lifted up and is seating on a throne. Like the way you respond to a king like that, you're not horrified by him. You're, you're not appalled by him. Instead, you, you bow down before him. You bow down at his feet and, and worship him. You're not horrified by him and appalled by him. So then that begs the question, why are they horrified and appalled by this victorious, conquering, divine king? Well, he tells us in the rest of verse 14. Look there with me. They were horrified and appalled by him because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, do you see what he's saying there? They were appalled and horrified by this servant because his body was so disfigured and mangled that people didn't even know if this was a human. His body was so mangled and disfigured that people couldn't even recognize who it was. And this wasn't because he was born with some sort of physical abnormality. Instead, the reason they couldn't recognize who it was was because he had been beaten and tortured so severely that his body was just a mangled, bloody mess, and nobody can even recognize who this bloody, mangled, disfigured mess was. And so then do you see how, how strange, how, how horrific, how appalling, how astonishing this would have been? Like when you think of victorious kings that are high and lifted up and exalted, you, your first image of that king is somebody who's strong, somebody who's mighty, somebody who's powerful, somebody who looks the part. And so we use this a lot of times. We say he or she looks presidential, meaning they look, the, they look like a president. When you think of a king, you think of somebody who's strong, mighty, and victorious, and reigning and ruling. When you think of a king, you don't think of a bloody, beaten, disfigured guy whose skin is hanging off his body, and you can hardly even recognize who he is. But that, that's the servant that God has chosen, which again would have been utterly shocking and surprising, which is why then if you go down to verse 15, God says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. If you have an ESV again, translation, you see a little footnote by that word sprinkle there. And if you follow that footnote down the bottom of the page, it says that that word sprinkle can also be translated as the word startled. Startled. And that probably best fits the context here. That when the nations just put all this together, see this disfigured, appalling man who's a bloody, mangled mess, being high and lifted up like God, like a king, then the reality of that will startle them. It'll shock them. That's why then in the rest of verse 15, it says, kings then shall shut their mouths because of him. Meaning when the kings of this world see this mangled, horrifically looking servant being high and lifted up as a king, then all the other kings of this world will be left speechless. Their mouths will be shut because they don't know what to say. That's how shocking Jesus' exaltation is going to be. So that's the first truth then that we learn about this servant. He will look appalling. He will look horrific. But he will be exalted as king. Which then leads to this second truth we learn about God's servant. The second truth is this. It's that he will be lowly 
and we will reject him. He will be lowly, and we will reject him. So what Isaiah goes on to say there in verse 1 of chapter 53, look there with me. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Meaning, who has believed that this tortured, mangled man is the victorious, exalted king? Who who believes that? The answer is, not many. Then he asks, in verse 1, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Throughout Isaiah, that, that, those words there, arm of the Lord, it's a reference to God's power to save. It's a reference to God's power to save, which in Isaiah 53 here is a reference to Jesus. That in Isaiah 53, Jesus is God's power to save. But again, look, look why and why so many people didn't believe that Jesus was, was the Messiah King, was God's power that had come to save. Look, look why many people didn't believe that. We see it in verse 2. It says, for he, here's why they didn't believe it. For he, talking about this servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What Isaiah is referring to here is Jesus' background, his origin, where Jesus came from. He, he came from, he, didn't, he wasn't born in a palace. He didn't come from a, a family of royalty. Instead, as you know, Jesus was born in a stable. He was from a little backwater town called Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. He didn't come from anywhere important. He didn't come from anywhere significant. He was just like a little root. Springing up, a little young plant. Springing up out of dry ground. Not not only that, but in the rest of verse 2, it says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, what he means by that is Jesus didn't look like a king. So like we talked about, he didn't have the appearance of a king. So then when they thought about all their expectations of what this coming Messiah, this coming king that God was going to send to rescue and to save them, that all these expectations, what he was going to look like and how powerful and and strong and mighty he was going to look. And Jesus didn't match any of those expectations. He didn't look like a king. He didn't come where, where kings came from. And as a result of that, then when he came on the scene, look at how they treated him. We see it there in verse 3. He was despised. You know what that word despised means? It means treated as worthless and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the reason he was sorrowful and, and acquainted with grief, probably in the context here, probably has to do as the result of the suffering and the mistreatment that he endured from others and the pain of that. It goes on, it says, and as one from whom men hid their faces. Think about that. People are so repulsed by him, so appalled by him, that they didn't even want to look at his face. Just, they were ashamed of him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Esteemed him not, meaning he was, he was a big fat zero to us. He was, he was nothing to them. That's a description of how the people in Jesus' day, the Roman soldiers, the Jews in his day, treated Jesus because he didn't measure up to their expectations of who they thought was going to come as their king so I don't know about you but but for us we can read this right and we can have two one of two emotions one is we can feel sorry for Jesus like oh sorry you were treated that way it's not fair and that's that's a good emotion the second emotion we can feel is is to be mad at the Jews and to be mad at the Roman soldiers and to roll our eyes and to think, how could they treat him like that? How could they reject him like that? How could they despise him like that? 
before we like get on our holy high horse and become really self-righteous and roll our eyes and wonder, how could they do that to him? Like we need to remember that this is, is us. Like it's not just those way back 2,000 years ago that hid their faces from Jesus who esteemed him not. Like it's you and it's me. And just think about that. Think about how in our pride, how in your pride, in your selfishness, how in your self-worship, in your self-righteousness, how in your materialism, that in all of that you, you despise Jesus. You've treated him as he's worthless, as if he has little to no value. There are times you do things, you seek after pleasure in other things, you look to other things to be your functional Messiah for you instead of him, and in doing that you're hiding your face from him. You're esteeming him as if he's not, as if he's nothing. This is huge for us to grasp here, that this wasn't just those in Jesus' day that treated him like this. It's you. It's, it's me. That's why in his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes this. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it first as something done by us. That's a good word. That not only was Jesus lowly, but we rejected him. Which then leads to this third truth about God's servant. The third truth is this. It's that he will be slaughtered in our place for our sin. He will be slaughtered in our place for our sin. This is what Isaiah goes on to say there in verse 4. Look there with me in verse 4. This next stanza here. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like right there, those three verses, probably some of the most important verses in all the Bible that, that get at the heart and get at the reason for why Jesus died on the cross and for what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. And we see this, right? We see this, look, look at verse six, the, the last verse there in the, the stanza. We, we see what our, what, our, what our problem is there in verse six. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Like th that's our problem right, right there. That we're all like these dumb, dirty sheep who've run away, who've wandered off from our shepherd God. That we've wandered away, we've gone our own way. Like, think about that. The sheep, we the sheep, have looked at God our shepherd and said, no, uh-uh, I ain't following you. I'm running this way, and I'm gonna go this way and do what I want to do. You want me to go this way and do this and follow you? I'm going this way to do what I want to do and not follow you. I, I'm wandering off. You, you go ahead. I, I'm not going with you. That's what we've done. In a thousand different ways. And in verse 5, Isaiah refers to, to all this as, as transgressions as iniquities. That word transgressions means rebellion against God. Word iniquity refers to breaking God's law, or breaking God's commandments. And so that, that's who we are. We're sheep who've wandered off, turned away from God our shepherd. And so then do you know what the, the result of what we deserve because of, of our wandering is? We, we deserve then for our shepherd God to pour out his holy judgment and his just wrath upon us and totally consume us and destroy us. Like to smithereens, 
Like, that is what we literally deserve. But this right here is the reason that Jesus died on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross. The servant, God sent the servant to die on the cross. Why? To take our place. To take the full fury of God's wrath that we deserve upon himself in our place as our substitute. And we see this, right? We saw this over and over again in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6. And the primary way we saw it in those verses were in the pronouns, right? In all the pronouns within those verses. Like again, go through verse 4 and and verse 5 and verse 6 and circle every time you see a pronoun. For those of you who are like, what's a pronoun? I know who you are. It's, it's like we and us and are, like those personal pronouns. So I'll help you out. Verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he, is, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed verse 6 the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all over and over and over and over again making the point that Jesus didn't die for his sin Jesus died for your sin Jesus died for my sin we're the ones who were who who were who deserved to be pierced We're the ones who deserve to be crushed. We're the ones who deserve to be chastised and wounded. But Jesus took our place. He was pierced for us. He was crushed for us. And God unleashed the full fury of his holy wrath on him in our place. That's why the one word that best describes and explains the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it's the word substitution. That Jesus substituted himself in the place of sinners on the cross and took the full judgment and punishment of God that we deserve for all the sins that we have ever committed and that we will ever commit. But did you notice here what what happened as a result then of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross? We see it at the very end of verse 5 there. Look there. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross brought us two things. Peace with God and his death on the cross healed our broken relationship with God. In other words, since God finally and fully poured out the full fury of his wrath on Jesus for our sins, then what that means then is that, that our guilt has been paid. What that means then is God's wrath against us has been completely and fully satisfied. And because his wrath against us has been fully and completely satisfied, then now God's not angry at us anymore. We're not guilty before him anymore. Instead, now we're at peace with him and our relationship with him has been completely restored and healed. But here's the kicker, and please hear this. This isn't true for everyone. This isn't true for everyone. Like just because you're here this morning, this isn't true of you. Instead, it's only true of those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus to be their substitute that saves them from the wrath of God that they deserve for their sins. It's only true for those who are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. And his substitutionary death on the cross is the one and only way to be rescued and saved from the just wrath that they deserve for their sins. But even in saying that, I want to share like a, an especial, uh, uh, yeah, a, a concern I have. When it comes to all these things that I've just shared about and what we've seen in verses 4, 5, and 6. A concern I have in preaching all this, especially on Easter morning, that my concern is this, is that there are scores of professing Christians out there, and maybe professing Christians sitting in this room this morning, 
who have done what I've just said? Sort of. Not really. But scores of professing Christians who have trusted in Jesus and placed their faith in Jesus to save them, but who aren't really saved. And you hear that and you're like, how can that be? If they're trusting in Jesus to save them, placing their faith in Jesus to save them, hoping and relying on Jesus and Jesus alone to save them, then how can they do that and not really be saved? Well, here's how. It's because they've trusted in Jesus to save them from the wrong thing. Let me say that again. It's because they've trusted in Jesus to save them from the wrong thing. In other words, they, they, didn't, they haven't come to Jesus as their substitute to save them from the punishment they deserve for their sin. Instead, they came to Jesus as their Savior to save them from the difficult circumstance or the difficult emotions that they're walking through in this life. Do you see the difference here? Coming to Jesus as your substitute to save you from God's wrath or just simply coming to Jesus to save you from your physical suffering and from your painful emotions. One of those is the gospel and one of those isn't the gospel. Like Jesus' death on the cross, he didn't die on the cross to save us from every difficult circumstance that we're walking through in this life. He died on the cross as your substitute to save you from the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins. And so then what that means is that you can be here this morning and you can love Jesus. You can worship Jesus. You can have your faith and trust in Jesus. But if you only came to that Jesus to save you from some difficulty in this life and you didn't come, from the, come to this Jesus to save you from the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins, then what that means this Easter morning is that you're not saved and that the just judgment of God and his holy wrath still rests on you. He hasn't been your substitute. You're still dead in your sin. And so then what you need to do this morning is for the first time in your life, you need to turn to Jesus as your substitute, trusting, believing that his substitutionary death on the cross paid the price and the judgment that you deserve for your sin. Like, you can do that, like, right now, this very moment. Which then leads to the fourth truth we see here about God's servant. The fourth truth is this. It's that he will die in silence, in innocence, yet be buried with the wicked. He will die in silence, in innocence, yet be buried with the wicked. This is what we see in the very next stanza. Look at verse 7 with me. Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What he's referring to here is Jesus' arrest, his, his trials, his scourging, his hanging on the cross, that while he was being betrayed and falsely accused and mocked and scourged and crucified, Jesus didn't lash back at anybody. He didn't yell at anybody. He didn't give people a piece of his mind. He didn't say, just wait until I get down from this cross and yours is coming. Instead, it says Jesus didn't open his mouth. What that means is that Jesus didn't go to the cross as an unwilling victim, kicking and screaming, trying to escape and trying to defend himself. Instead, he went to a cross as a willing servant because he knew that this was God's plan and that this was the Father's will. And he was submitting himself to the Father's will. And therefore, as he endured all the mocking, all the betrayal, all the false accusations, all the beating, all the torture, all the crucifixion, 
he kept his mouth shut, submitting himself to his father's will. In verse 8 then it says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And then verse 9 it says, and they made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, the point that Isaiah is emphasizing here is that this servant of God, Jesus, he was 100% completely innocent. That's the point he's emphasizing here, that he was innocent of all charges against him. In other words, he wasn't an insurrectionist going around stirring up violence, making deceitful claims about himself. Instead, he was 100% totally and completely not guilty. But even though he was innocent, they still killed him. And after killing him, do you know where they placed him? They placed him in a grave with the wicked. Because even after his death, that's where they thought he belonged. And that's who they thought he was. That even though he was innocent, he was given a grave with the wicked. Which then leads to this fifth and final truth we see here about God's servant. And this final truth is this. See it on your handout. It's that this servant will be crushed to death by God, yet he will live, be satisfied, and be rewarded forever. Oh, this is how Isaiah closes this last stanza here. Look at verse 10, how Isaiah closes this. He says, yet, meaning even though, connect that to verse 9 here, right? Yet, meaning even though he was innocent, even though there wasn't any deceit in his mouth, yet, even though all that was true, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Like up to this point, you read everything that happened to Jesus, and it's easy to, to think that, that the reason that Jesus was being pierced, the reason Jesus was being crushed, the reason Jesus was being mangled on the cross was because of those dirty Romans. Or to think that the reason Jesus was a mangled, bloody, disfigured mess on the cross was because the Jews put him there. There's no good, sorry, Jews. It's, it's the Romans' fault. It's the Jews' fault. They're the ones who's ultimately responsible for all that Jesus is enduring and for Jesus' death. And that's partly true. The Romans, the Jews, they're, they're partly responsible. But here at the very beginning of verse 10, what Isaiah is saying here is that the ultimate reason, the primary reason that Jesus died the primary reason that Jesus was crushed to death on a cross wasn't because of the Jews. It wasn't because of the Romans. Instead, it was because of God. That it was God's will to crush him. Which then begs this question, why? In other words, if Jesus was innocent, if he hadn't done anything wrong, if no deceit was found in his mouth, if he didn't deserve to die then why was it God's will to crush him to death? Well, he gives us three reasons in this last stanza. And the first reason is, is what he says next there in verse 10. Look there with me. He says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. What he's referring to here is a, is a guilt offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That if you sinned against God, then you would take a ram, you would slaughter it as a sacrifice, as a guilt offering. And that guilt offering would atone for your sins. It would remove the guilt of your sins so that you could be forgiven by God for your sins. And that's what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. Just picture this, put all this together. He is our guilt offering. That through him being crushed in our place... He took all the guilt for all the sins that we've ever committed. His death atoned for our sins. But that's not all. It gets even better than that. The second reason God crushed his servant, that was God's will to crush Jesus to death, is found in verse 11. Look there with me. Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And here's what he's going to be satisfied about and pleased about. The rest of verse 11, by his knowledge 
shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The key point words there are those last words, to be accounted righteous. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just remove the guilt of our sins. It also causes us to be counted as righteous by God in God's sight. In other words, this right here, this guilt offering and this being counted righteous is the great exchange that Jesus secured for us on the cross. That through Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus takes our guilt from us and in exchange he gives to us his righteousness. He takes our guilty record from us and is condemned in our place and in exchange he gives to us his perfect record of righteousness so that God can declare us to be righteous and justified in his sight. And as awesome and as great as that is, that's not even then the story. It even gets better than that. Look at the very end of verse 10 there. I skipped these, the very end of verse 10 there, but look there with me. That even though it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, look what, look what Isaiah says about Jesus and the servant at the very end of verse 10. It says this. He says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Which then begs this question. That's weird. Like, how is someone who's been crushed to death and killed and slaughtered as a guilt offering going to see their offspring? How are their days going to be prolonged? Like, they've been crushed to death. They've been slaughtered as a guilt offering. They ain't going to see anything anymore. Their days aren't going to be prolonged anymore. Their days are over. So how is, how is Jesus' days going to be prolonged? How, are he, how is he going to see his offspring if he's been crushed to death? Well, do you know what the answer is? The answer is God's going to raise him back to life. That God's he's going to conquer death. He's going to be resurrected, which is like what this whole idea of Easter Sunday is all about it's all about this servant who is crushed to death by the father as a substitute for sinners and then who is raised back to life so that he can see his offspring and do you know who his offspring are it's us it's all those who have trusted in Jesus by faith to be their substitute on the cross and their guilt offering before God so that their guilt can be removed and that they can be declared righteous by God in God's sight. Which then leads to the third and final reason then that Jesus crushed his son. The third reason is found in verse 12. There, Look there with me. We're going to end with this. In verse 12, God says, therefore, therefore, meaning in, in light of Jesus' substitutionary death that he's accomplished for us, in light of Jesus being a guilt offering, for us, in light of us being declared righteous by God because of Jesus' death on the cross, in light of that, here's what, here's what God is going to do. Therefore, I will divide him, talking about Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's a whole lot there that we don't have time to get into, but just see the picture here that Isaiah is painting. He's using this figurative language here to describe Jesus' triumph, to describe Jesus' victory, to describe Jesus' exaltation. In other words, when a king went out to battle and when he conquered his enemy, then that king would return back to his city and he would return with all these spoils of war. And you know what he would do with all these spoils of war? He would share them with all the people in the city. And that's the picture here of Jesus, that Jesus didn't stay dead. Instead, he was raised back to life. He's our victorious, conquering, triumphant king who has conquered our enemies of sin and death through his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And now he sits high and lifted up and exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shares now, 
He shares with us, his offspring, all the spiritual spoils of war, all the spiritual blessings that he has secured for us through his victorious death and his conquering resurrection. And the way we as Christians, his offspring, we get to enjoy some of those spoils, like right now, in the here and now, like the spoils of justification and the spoils of redemption and the spoils of reconciliation. But we will enjoy the full consummation of all those spoils of war that Jesus has secured for us through his death and resurrection. We will enjoy them when he returns and when we see him face to face. Like this is why it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Like Jesus wasn't just crushed as an unwilling victim by Jews and by a bunch of Roman soldiers. Instead, he was crushed by God for you and for me to save us so that one day when Jesus returns, the resurrected Jesus returns to this earth, he will see us, his offspring, and he will share with us all the victory that he has secured for us through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. And we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth, living victorious, reigning and ruling with him forever, enjoying him and all the spoils of war that he's secured for us forever and ever and ever. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today and for your word. Thank you for something that, Lord, you, by your sovereign providential plan, orchestrated that you had penned 700 years before it ever even happened. And that now, 2,000 years later, we can look back in hope, we can look back in victory, we can look back just realizing that the guilt that so many in this world are seeking to be appeased and removed by being plunged in rivers, by taking pilgrimages, by sacrificing dead animals, the removal of that guilt was ultimately accomplished 2,000 years ago. It's nothing that we bring to the table. It's nothing that we do. It's no religious deeds and activities that we can perform. It's simply trust and believing in the substitute sacrificial lamb that you have provided for us. And I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that is not trusting in Christ as their substitute, I pray, Lord, that they would do that even at this very moment. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.